Uh, all right, Blake, how are you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. We're finally seeing each other. We should, yeah. we, we should be at the studio having a drink, but we'll do that when we get out of this. I would love to do that. What What do you have hanging right behind you? Is that a mandolin? Uh, where? Oh no, that's a it's a bazooki. Oh, cool. See, my, 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 my danger is if I travel, I usually bring back an instrument from that country. So I went to Greece a few years and brought back a bazooki. Oh, that's cool. I can't play, but it looks gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, this is gorgeous. Um, how are you doing through the whole pandemic and everything? How I'm good. I, I've been uh, writing music for myself. Uh, I enjoyed having the number one movie in the world for a few weeks, which was awesome, which I know that's why we're talking. Um, yeah. Things are good. I'm healthy. I everyone I know is healthy, and uh, it's a it's a really good. I was telling a friend that I see this as a reset time, not a pause. Like I want to come out of this and figure out how we want to change things going forward. So I think I feel like it's a time for innovation, um, whether that's redoing my rigs or writing differently or studying. I've been studying again, mm. so I I don't want to look at it as this like eight month pause and then we all go back to how we did things um, did you uh you said that you started writing for yourself did yeah you know? i always have taken time to write for myself even though i'm <laughs> incredibly busy uh i always do have to write for myself and this has been a nice time to do that more and what is what is different about that process then or is it is it a different energy or a different uh, I well, I think it's it's two things. It's emotional and structurally different. Um, sort of writing things for myself. It's almost like a journaling, you know, like how I'm feeling that day or that week. Uh, but structurally, I'm not chasing a cut. I'm not chasing an edit. The story's mm. all in my head. I'm not having to, you know, fight fight the picture. Is there is there? Uh, will you release a solo album at any point? Maybe, and it'll be on Lakeshore. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Hey, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's um, do before, we, before we get into Greyhound and, and the specific, and not only was it the number one movie, um, it was the number one scorecard in the world um, and got a ton of amazing press. Um, Which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, Our first outing and we had the number one. Like, go figure. Yeah, we, hey, we got lucky. We, we, we convinced <laughs> you to finally work with us. Um, so before we get into all of that, I'd love to just get a sense of your musical background, um, how you got into music, what your first musical memories are, your first teachers, just like really the, the basic entry into Blake's musical existence. Well, I grew up in Paris, Texas in pre-internet age, so I was a bit trapped. And uh, I started playing piano when I was four. I started writing little little things when I was six. And then I was also a classical music nerd um, and listened to my parents' recordings, uh, all these Bernstein LPs. And uh, when I was eight, I was sitting in a movie, Star Wars, and I thought, I've never heard this music before. It sounds classical, but I've never heard it. So that must be someone's job. And my parents were like, yeah, uh, someone writes music for movies. And like, I want that job. And it was really Star Wars that set it off. Um, and then years later, I went to the University of Texas in Austin, which is a fantastic school, but was 
rejected from their music school because I didn't pass the piano audition. I got this amazing letter. It was the best thing that happened to me in my career. I got this letter that said, uh, we think you, we strongly encourage you to consider a different career option. And that lit this fire under me that just never quit. It was, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I did. Do you so, know who wrote that letter? No, <laughs> no. If I did, I wouldn't shame them, but uh, it actually, I, would. I should, I should write them a thank you. Okay, yeah, that's true. Good point. Good point. What a crazy thing to say to someone. I mean, hey, whatever works, works. Yeah, and then and then my the rest of my story is uh, is an exercise in nepotism. My best friend in college, his father worked for Disney, and one summer he wanted me to spend the summer in L.A. with him, and he asked his dad could he get me an internship, and he got me an internship in the Disney's film music department, and off I went. How did you, I mean, but there's still a lot of fish in the sea, right? So how did you break? I mean, what? I worked at Disney after college. I worked at Disney for uh, three, four years. And and then I got to know a lot of composers. And one that I knew was Michael Kamen. So when I left Disney and went out freelance, I became one of his assistants and orchestrators and just worked my way up that way. Until one day uh, I got a meeting through the exact same friend from Texas, who is now the head of the WB network. And he said, you should meet my friend. Greg was doing his first show. And um, before the meeting, I got a copy of the show. And as my demo, I just scored it. I was like, here's my demo. And Greg actually loved it and hired me. And then I became the composer that I am. What's crazy is, you know, that's just his first show. Now he's the most prolific producer in television history. And, uh, our collaboration and his loyalty has made everything for me. So you started off, at least as far as paying the bills go, with, with arranging. Yeah, arranging and orchestrating. For, for many other composers. Um, Michael was the first, and uh, followed by Graham Ravel and uh, Hans Zimmer, James Newton Howard. You know, just, just a few hacks. Yeah, yeah no, nobody big. Um, so how much do I have to pay you to release your score transcription uh, as like an arrangement and sound design for dummies book of Greyhound? Because I can't, I can't figure out exactly what you've done in terms of the instrumentation and how you've created these sounds. I'm glad because, because Pete, like there's one thing in Greyhound, there's this, what everyone calls the whale sounds, which is uh, my wolf pack thing. Yeah. And they all want to know how I did it and what it is. And I keep telling them, look, if if you hear a, a bump in the night, it's terrifying until you figure out it's your ice maker, and then you go back to sleep. So if I tell you what it is, you're not going to be terrified anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's fair. But I will say it's a combination of a human player and electronics and manipulation because I feel like if you actually the, – the actual human element in – although it's mostly electronic, the human element makes it just – a little bit more terrifying. Yeah. You know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly effective. I mean, the, the movie, to me, Greyhound, it's, you know, it's an American war story, but it, it's a horror story. I mean, we're, we're dealing in, in horror. I mean... It is. Those things were constantly lurking beneath, and I have an abs, absolute fear of the ocean, so for me, it wasn't hard to get in the headspace of what is that like for these things to just be lurking. Um, and it's not like they come up with teeth. They come up with torpedoes. <laughs> so 
and Gary and Tom, they wanted it to be terrifying. And, uh, and so that was, that was what, it wasn't a difficult thing to come up with. It was just, it was really fun. I mean, it's so much harder to write like a theme. Sure. But I felt like, I felt like the, the submarines couldn't have a hummable theme. It was almost mm-hmm. outdated to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why that's the sort of sound stamp. Yeah, and there it's uh, you know we've got things like Jaws, right? We've got these mm-hmm. classic sort of uh, few note riffs in the low end that are just you know terrifying. Feels like a predator. Um, but there's also the, your percussion, your use of percussion that's propelling the score. Oh, thanks. That was that was a lot of fun, and I actually played all of the percussion myself, which was a little bit of a nightmare. But I thought. Yeah. This uh, this score meant so much to me, and I rented in like thirty different drums and set them up. And over a five day period, would just go in and record layer after layer. And uh, I remember saying to my engineer one day, I was like, "I could have made this a lot easier on myself." But <laughs> it was one of those movies like once you have a layer going, just add another and and cross rhythms and um, because the trick of this movie, as Gary and Tom knew, was it has to keep ramping up. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, if you blow everything in that first battle, so the first battle has to be big, has to wrap you, you know, pull you in, be exciting. But if you blow everything, where are you going to go next? So it was this constant, like, did I do too much? Can I top that? And it's funny, when I got to the the sixth reel, the last battle, I'm like, I'm so out of tricks. I, I got, yeah, yeah. I've used every rhythm, I've used every instrumentation. But, uh, you know, you just have to push and find a way to go bigger. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you say mirrors perfectly the film itself, the narrative of the film itself, right? Yeah, and I've said this before. It, it, it was, I'm sure it was the exact same puzzle for Tom when he was writing it. Mm-hmm. How do I go bigger and bigger? Um, and acting it. I mean, and no one else could have pulled that performance off. Sure, you know? sure. I would love to know the answer, though. How did you determine, literally, how did you determine point A, and point B, how did you get, how did you not go too big in the beginning? And determine- well, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes on like the, uh, on the superhero shows, right? I'll sometimes write the end first, mm-hmm. but I decided very systematically to write the score linearly. Um, okay. And that way I could sort of find it and I could just ratchet up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, it's not all me. It's, you know, Gary Getzman coming over and listening and saying, I think you might be a little big there. Hold back. I'm like, cool. Um, I, I kept hearing his words in my ear. He's like, you got a long way to go, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's this just phenomenal payoff. I mean, in terms of it's a very hard earned American classic patriotic quintessential Americana uh, but at what cost that that opus is like it's like Samuel Barber Aaron Copeland I mean it's just like Samuel Dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna frame that compliment on my wall that is amazing <laughs> hearing that from you um of all the music you've heard in your life my gosh uh thank you um sure. well, thank you I mean when I when I heard it I really when I heard that I was just floored the opening notes all the way through the trajectory of it, it has an entirely different energy. Than- well, and, but that's what, you know, it's, it's funny because most of us want to announce our theme at the beginning and 
theme, 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 theme all the way through, but you couldn't do it in this movie because, um, you know, Captain Krauss hadn't earned that reprieve. And it's like, once he got there, once he could relax, once he could finally go to sleep after 72 hours, it was like, and, and the men were honoring him. I felt like, well, it's like the film tells you what to do. Right. So although I want to do this American patriotic theme, it just, it felt, uh, it felt right by the time we got out of all this mess. The other thing that I always, I always wanted to put into that final theme is, is a bittersweet almost, I mean, it's heroic, but a, a little bit of bittersweet and melancholy because what the audience forgets is, yeah, but look where they're heading. Like they're about to get to the war, you know? So these men have been through hell, but it's going to get worse. Yeah. And and he's alone. I mean, he's, he's not with his love. He's He's lost everything. He's lost everything. And for, that's why I call the track at, but at what cost? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's what's so haunting about it because I don't know the answer to the question posed in the title. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. It's like, it's, it's heroism, but it's not, uh, you don't get to feel all cozy about it. You have to really sit with it and think about it. Yeah. I mean, if we'd launched into some kind of John Philip Sousa kind of feel like, no. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to work. The war's over. Let's yeah, all exactly, exactly. And it's like the war's just begun. And um, so that was, it's it's one of my, uh, you know, proudest memories is is Gary hearing that and being like, dude, great. Oh, I mean. It's always, I mean, it's always intimidating as a composer. You know, you, you, you like your stuff and you present it, but it could be like, that's not right. Okay, I'll do something else. Um, so that was very satisfying. Yeah, it's a standalone, for me, it's a standalone piece. It, it, it's something that could be, you know, I see the military using it, you know, outside of the film. I mean, it's a real, you know, I, I, would, I would pay a lot of money, I mean, post-pandemic, obviously, to, to hear that live, you know. I would, too, and maybe we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what's funny, what's funny is uh, Gary and Tom knew what the movie needed while they were filming Gary texted me from Baton Rouge while they're filming mm. and said, we're doing this film and uh, it needs a big patriotic theme like you've done for the Pacific and like you did for the scene in decades series. And mm-hmm. so he, that's specifically I think what drew him to me on this one mm-hmm. because we'd never done something that was what 90% of the score is, which is just tension. And we'd never done a score like that. So he's not thinking we need Blake for tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought me in for the theme, and I was super excited about that. It's it's also faith, right? I mean, the through lines of the whole movie is faith. Uh, he has just this unwavering dedication to his crew and to the mission, um, and a uh, sort of superhero-like respect of life. You know, he doesn't. It's like minimal casualty, minimal damage, and he has faith that he's going to get through. Minus. Uh, particular experience. I mean, he has experience, but he doesn't know how he's going to do it, but he just... He has experience, but it's his yeah. first mission. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and he... Yeah, it's, it's faith in yourself, right? It's like, mm-hmm. all these kids are looking at me like he has no idea what he's doing. Mm-hmm. We don't know him, and he's very... You know, he doesn't talk much. 
Yeah. Um, they have faith in him, but he knows. He knows that he can do this. And is that... Rarely doubts. He rarely shows doubt through the movie, which is incredibly uh, austere. Yeah, it's inspirational. I mean, it's, it's inspiring, especially with, you know, it, like I said earlier, it's a horror story. He's unwavering. He's unwavering. He is, as he, although there's this relentlessness to everything around him, he's the most relentless figure of the movie. And I think the music really captures that. Um, you're playing, when you were playing the drums, was that cathartic at all? How did that feel? Literally, it's, a, it's that exhausting, feel? but uh, it's a workout. Yeah. Because um, you're, I mean, it's not like soft drumming. It's all sure. loud. But it's, it's cathartic and it's exciting. You know, I, I, I would have brought in players because I love nothing more than bringing in players and just sitting in the booth listening. But I just felt like I wanted to do it. Um, and then the, the orchestra just really brought it when we did that. They were just incredible. You know, I had what I, what I enjoyed doing in Greyhound was experimenting with extreme ranges mm -hmm. for tension. So what sounds like a, a French horn is actually a chimbasso playing at its highest register. Really? Um, and like <laughs> my concert master, there's this one bit at the very last final battle. And I heard him say to it, I heard him mumble, uh, I don't think I've ever played that high on this thing. <laughs> still laugh about it. But even that, they just nailed it. You know, that's musicians for you. Um, you've done a lot of superhero work, obviously. Um, and Krauss is, is a real, you know, it's based on, this is a real story. Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's, there's creative license. Do you have to tamper down or have a different sonic landscape when you're dealing with comic books and sort of these legend iconic sort of characters versus real life superheroes is it a different palette necessarily or a different scale or meta versus well i think like with the superheroes you can give them light motifs and when they come in there's their mm -hmm. theme right mm -hmm. but you can't like every time Krauss does something, there's his theme because mm -hmm. we don't really know him as that, as such. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And what I've found also is I've scored some superheroes in documentaries and it's very different. Uh, you know, Serena Williams, she's a superhero. Absolutely. But, but you don't, you know, do the leitmotif thing. And you try to find, uh, what I try to find on like the documentary work or, or real superheroes is, find the real humanity there mm -hmm. but i actually learned that through working with greg berlandi on the superhero shows because he said if we don't if we don't tell you their humanity they're not believable in their superhero form does that make sense yeah like, we really believe that these are human beings that just have extraordinary powers and so his main focus when we started arrow and then the flash was let's get to the emotional core with the music you can do the superhero part, but let's really get to their emotional human core, which yeah. is super helpful. Then when you score something like Greyhound or uh, the keepers, you know, mm -hmm. the keepers was incredible. Thank can, you. Can you talk about the keepers? That was a heavy, heavy project. If you can just, uh, the keepers was heavy, very yeah. heavy. And um, it was, it's a true crime series. You know, it's, it's, it's like, watching any true crime series, but it just had a very different feel to it to me because 
of the religious aspects, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that these women, these victims are still living and living with this nightmare, the fact that it's unsolved mm-hmm. for it's as old as I am. So 51 years, this thing hasn't been solved. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was my best description is it was a very haunting thing to work on. Yeah. Haunted me for years after. Do you make that decision? I mean, you know, you have to live with these things, you know, for a long time. I mean, TV comes and goes a little quicker than, than films, but still, I mean, you're spending months of your life on one project or maybe multiple projects at a time, but, does that come into your mind when you're selecting your projects? Can I sit with this? Can I live with this? Yeah, but that comes from being very fortunate to be in the position that I can say no to things. You know, I, I tell students, like, take take everything. You sure. know, maybe you don't feel passionate about it, but take everything because the experience you gain and the and the collaborations. I mean, you know, who knows what one director is going to turn into. Yeah. Um, but I have gotten to a place where I can be very selective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I realize that's a privileged position, but it's great to, to see something, you know, Ryan and I were finishing Serena Williams documentary and he yeah. said, I want to play this teaser reel I'm putting together for Netflix. And it was a four minute teaser that basically told the 10 parts of the keepers. Hmm. I said, I want that. I will do that for nothing. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible doc. It's, it's a docuseries. It's, it's really, really interesting. Um, I want to ask you, I read in an article, you mentioned, uh, you've talked about creating a false comfort zone for the ears. Can you expand upon that statement? Um, so for, for example, let me, let me think of how I, how I would do that. Um, if I start off like in a, a fifth, the fifth is open in, in music. Mm-hmm. You don't know if that's minor or major. And for, for, we can argue this for years. They have argued it for years that minor doesn't always mean sad. Major doesn't always mean happy. Sure. But if we go with those adjectives and you just play a fifth, like CG, until you play the third, you don't know how to feel. The valence. Yeah. So yeah. what I love to do is put you in a like open neutral position and then with literally one added note, you can be like, oh, shit, that's not what I thought this was going to be. Mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be happy. And now it's incredibly unnerving. Um, so that's kind of a false comfort zone because it's manipulating as hell. But that's, that's your job, right? My job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're a sonic manipulator. I mean, that's, that's, that's the job. Uh, is there a way that you do that with polyrhythm or rhythm in general? Do you? Yeah, I did it on... Um, I did a lot with Greyhound. That was a nice experiment of if you get going in one rhythm, you feel like, okay, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. And as soon as you cross rhythm it, it's, it's jarring because you may not be listening to the music. You're kind of feeling it as you're watching the picture. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're kind of, you know, doing this like we would at a concert. Right. And then all of a sudden it turns left. It's very effective because Mm -hmm. the, you know, my, my other job is to be completely subliminal or try to be subliminal. Mm-hmm. And um, I like to get you in this sort of, that's also a, a, a false safety, right? Is you're just kind of grooving along and wait, what was that seven, eight bar? Yeah. Um, you don't think it, but you know, something turned left. 
or something missing or and you always have a, a bit of an anchor right you start on the one mm-hmm. speaking and so you always have a sense of sort of where that is and when you throw them off when you throw off the ear do you feel any uh, do you have to cycle back Is there any, do you have to get them re-anchored back into uh, feeling like there's some sort of resolution with your pieces, even when there's... Well, what's funny is you can get them comfortable again, even in this new rhythm, right? So, so what I find really fun is you start off on the one, mm-hmm. and then suddenly I do something, you realize, oh shit, that was the two. Mm-hmm. And then you get them comfortable with that again, and then it's like, oh wait... That's, we're in triplets. We're not in, <laughs> yeah. and you get uncomfortable with that. So that's what became really fun on, on Greyhound. And, and you can do that. At, and we're not just talking about percussion. Like you can do that with the string ostinato and suddenly it's, it's different. Sure. Sure. Um, did you, I think I read uh, Shostakovich was a bit of an influence, at least on one of the themes. Is that correct? Oh yeah. He's, but like I said, I was a classical music nerd, so that stuff just lives in my brain. Um, Prokofiev, there's uh, some pieces that were like, I, I, want, I don't want to copy that. I just want to achieve the effect that it has on me when I hear it, if that makes sense. Shostakovich has this, I think it's his eighth symphony, the war symphony, that it just has this brutality in the, uh, in the brass that um, actually when I was conducting one of these pieces in Greyhound, I told the brass, you know, like, Shostakovich eight and they're like got it <laughs> <laughs> with this wall of anger <laughs> yeah, that's cool that's super cool. are there any um uh for the patriotic theme were there any particular influences that you were looking towards or was it just something that came to you no i i mean for me uh it it always comes back to you know uh elgar John Williams, uh, Benjamin Britten, the the classics. Um, those 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 pieces that just feel not necessarily. I mean, Elgar wasn't patriotic to us, but he's patriotic to Britain. And, um, you know, the Enigma variations or uh, whatever. But I, when I set out to write that, I, it was just I kind of just wrote a personal piece. Mm-hmm. I haven't really thought about it honestly, but what is the quality that makes something sound patriotic? Oh man, I don't know. Isn't that crazy? There, that there like is you 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 like know an anthem, right? Like ah. when you hear it, it's got a certain sort of. I mean, I th- certainly think of brass often for some reason. I don't know if that's true, but I, I mean, I, I mean, like John Williams, he here with the Superman theme, which is incredible, but it yeah. doesn't sound patriotic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the same man wrote Saving Private Ryan, and that feels like it's been part of America since. Sure. George Washington, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it's, it is. It's, it's crazy. And there's different styles of uh, 
of patriotism. Like I mentioned, you know, Sousa, that's mm-hmm. very patriotic, but it's yeah. not emotionally patriotic. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's pretty in the box though, right? In terms of like, you don't get too free. You don't get too wild with patriotic yeah. music, right? You're not like doing insane chords or. No, it's country music. It's four chords and that's yeah. it. It's yeah. like popular. Chords, surprise me with a fifth and that's it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it's digestible for the people. Yeah, like the Samuel Barber Adagio. Mm-hmm. It was a classical piece, but it feels now patriotic. It's very yeah. It's interesting. Um, I wonder though. I wonder if 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 the theme to Greyhound would still feel patriotic were it not set to uh, a naval ship and a captain in uniform. I wonder if it would still come across patriotic because that's a thing that film can fool us and tell us what what that piece of music is. Are those, are those French horns in the beginning of that theme? Yeah. Yeah, no. What, when I heard those French horns, I was like, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on right now, but like the feeling of I am proud to be an American. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. whatever that feeling is, which is like, I'm not that familiar with that feeling these days, but. Uh, whatever that is, yeah. Yeah, I certainly immediately felt it. Um, so personally, I would argue yes. It had had it been nothing nothing to do with the film, it, it strikes a very patriotic chord with me, at least. Um, the other thing I feel it can can, um, and I'm not a religious person, but I feel like hymns feel very American, mm-hmm. Americana, and uh, and I do sort of structure that piece hymnal like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps, but I don't, I don't know. I listen to so much music like you and I, I just don't know how certain things with the exact same chords, exact same yeah. instrumentation do not give me this feeling of this one. You know? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Tempo. Magic of music. Yeah. Um, do you have, do you ever get a uh, writer's block? Yeah. Oh yeah. All the time. Um, what but when I'm in, and when I'm in production, it just, you just have to push through. And what I do is I tell myself, okay, this may, might not be exactly what I want to write right now. And this might not be the perfect thing, mm-hmm. but it works. So go with it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You just got to watch the scene. It's not the greatest thing you ever wrote, but it does work. So just push through. And then when the block goes away, you can write exactly what you want to write. My wife, uh, she had a law school professor who said, um, don't get it right, get it done. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, you get writer's block, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yes and no. It's sort of like I've sort of come to look at it as um, uh, a label, right? Because it's just like it's only, a, it's, it's only writer's block if I have really high standards at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's always really easy to write something shitty, right? <laughs> I mean, like if you – yeah, like it's only if you're saying, for me personally, I mean, and it's taken me a lot to get to this point, but but if, I feel like it's a psychological thing where I say to myself, I've got nothing. And then I realize, actually, I've got plenty. It's just not very good right now. So just get it out. Just get it I out. Thought, I remember talking to uh, Hans Zimmer one time, and um, I said, don't you, don't you fear running out of ideas? And he said, you'll never run out of ideas. You just never will. I, a lot of, personally, I mean, I'm not Hans Zimmer, but, um, but I often try to 
not take ownership of my best ideas. Mm. Just a sort of like, because I think as, as a human being, I can, yeah, I can run out of quote unquote ideas, but they're not mine really. When I think about it. some, a lot of it comes from the ether or like, I'm it downloading. really does. It really yeah. does. I, the, the one interview question I'm like, I can't answer that is when someone will say, how did you write that? I don't remember just one day, whether I'm at a stoplight or getting dressed or sitting in front of my computer that came to me. And uh, so it's not really my idea. Like you say, it, it, yeah. was, it was given. For, I, just, for, I just wrote it down. Yeah. For, for, for me personally, I, I have a theory about myself, which is at some point I was really young. I was just put in front of a Looney Tunes for hours and hours and hours. Oh, you do. Yeah. And, and I, I really think half of what I'm doing in life outside of music and in music is regurgitating that. At any given moment, I don't know which theme or whatever it is, but, and that music was amazing, so I'm not complaining. I was just mixing this piece the other day with my engineer, and I, and I turned to him and I said, dude, I don't know where that came from. I know it's mine. I know I didn't copy, but I just, I just hear Elmer Fudd going, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. Like, I would sit in front of, I love television. I always have loved television, and I would, you know, whether it was Dick Van Dyke or, or I Love Lucy, like that music just, you just pull it in, leave it to Beaver. And, yeah. and, and you'll hear as you're writing, it'll be like, wait, that's definitely influenced. Um, do you have uh, a dream project in mind that you love to jump on? No, I don't. No, I... I guess I used to maybe, you know, we all joke that, hey, if they call me for Star Wars 10, I'm there. Sure, sure, sure. But sure. no, I really, I really just like doing things that speak to me. So I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, is, there something, is there something outside of what you've done that you might like to explore in terms of sonically or uh, arrangement wise, orchestration wise or anything like that? Uh, I, uh, to say no sounds terrible. I just no. It's like I feel like I feel like this is a great time for and every project is like a great moment to innovate, mm-hmm. and so you try to push yourself forward differently. Um, and if it works, great. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't, it's it's still not failure. It's like that's just kind of how I write. I I get disappointed when I uh when I realized that, oh, you kind of already did that three years ago. Yeah, yeah. But that's just me doing what I do. Sure. Um, but yeah, you try to push, push, the, push the envelope a little bit. I mean, I think, it'd be, I think it'd be interesting to, uh, when I saw 1917, mm-hmm. extreme period piece, right? It is even in the title. Mm-hmm. First, the first musical sound you hear is an electric keyboard. And I thought, damn it, Thomas did it again. <laughs> Just innovative as hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anachronistic sort of, uh, but but very grounded. It, it, it works. It works. Because we are watching, like, you watch a period piece, but you're watching it from now. Right. right? We're grounded I mean, in the moment. I mean, we're in 1942 and, or 43, whatever, in, in Greyhound. It's like, no, we're, we're definitely using weird modern sounds in this because 
you're in a horror film. Did you, did, did you know you were going to use synths off the bat? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's so, the look is so period. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to just do an orchestral thing. Mm-hmm. Not that that's a dated sound at all. I mean, I had this argument the other day, like orchestra is not dated. Orchestra is the one thing that has lasted for 500 years. Yeah, it's time. It's effective. But I think when you can bring in the, the unknown, it's very powerful. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think orchestra is the least dated. I mean, it's yeah. Like, yeah. you know, uh, you hear a synth and you think 80s almost immediately, unless it's, uh, you know, really pulled off well. Um, do you uh, do you have any projects on deck that we can talk about? On deck? No, we're just waiting for, we're just waiting to come back, I guess. Um, yeah. The shows have started filming again, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and um, oh, there's a there's a show uh, that my friend Martin Garrow, who did Blind Spot, mm-hmm. he sold a show during pandemic because you know he's Martin. Yeah, um, and it's it's called Connecting for NBC, and it's all told through all five characters are on their zooms, mm-hmm. and it's retelling what we just went through. So it starts in March and there's eight episodes and the next one's in April. It's a, it's a half hour comedy, but it's actually a dramedy because they get into some heavy stuff. I mean, none of this was funny. Yeah. Sort of a lot of it was funny. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you, you know, as a parent, yeah, some of it's funny. Yeah. Some of it is very funny. It's, 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 you got to find those moments where you can laugh at yourself. Yeah. So that's fun. That's coming out October 1st. Very different for me. I, I mean, I don't do sitcoms, but I, you know, I'll score Martin's wedding video if he wants. Sure. Sure. Um, Other than that, I'm just looking forward to uh, things coming back and new projects arising and old ones too. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I'm conscious of your time. Is there, is uh, on social media, is there best way to follow you or see what you're up to, get updates on you? Yeah, Twitter. I'm Cal in the Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, What's up with the cow? Cal in the Wall is my dad was a rancher and a farmer. Cool. I actually had, I had a pet cow when I was little. Um, also had a horse named Darth Vader. And uh, so those are the sounds on 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 the U boats. Yeah, they're cows. They're all cows. <laughs> yeah. Cows and Darth Vader. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I was, uh, I was trying to come up with a publishing company years ago, years ago. Yeah. And I had this, I have this longhorn on my studio wall, uh, longhorn head. Cause I'm from Texas and university of Texas and they needed a name that would clear quickly. And I said, well, how about cow on the wall? And they said, yeah, that'll clear. And <laughs> well, what I love about it, which I didn't realize until I saw it in a legal contract is it abbreviates to COW. That's amazing. Isn't that fun? You so did. Cal- so Cal Noel Studios, we now call cows because it abbreviates to that. But that's what it is. Um, so social media, I'm at Cal on the Wall, and uh, you know Facebook, just by my name. Great, um, Blake. Thank you so much. You're cool as hell, Blake. We got to do. You're we gotta cool We got to do more records, man. Well, we'll have some Zoom cocktails later, and then we'll have real yeah. ones when I see you. All right, man. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for the release, for being my partner in this. And uh, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much, Blake. We'll, We'll talk soon. All right. See you soon. Bye.